Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by JB Hanley, who wrote a book, How to End the Autism Epidemic. And we haven't done a discussion on autism in a while, so we thought it was good for an update, especially in light of the fact that I'm speaking at Generation, Generation Rescue's autism educational event in Dallas, Texas at the end of September. So uh, we'll be discussing that. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, JB. Thank you very much for having me. So you're the father of a child with autism, as unfortunately so many other parents are. Tragically, it's really sad to cite that statistic, but that's the reality of it. And um, you uh, were so motivated by what you found out that you wrote a book about it. But why don't you expand on your story and give our listeners an opportunity to uh, understand how you came to this position and why you wrote the book. So, yeah, my, and my, my wife and I were what I would characterize as very mainstream parents, which meant that when our second son was born in 2002, we basically handed him to our pediatrician and did whatever our pediatrician told us to do, which meant following the CDC's recommended schedule, as you well know. Um, we started to watch our son decline physically after every vaccine appointment at two months, at four months, at six months, at 12 months. He physically declined. He got eczema. His belly became distended. He had sleep disturbances. He had dark circles under his eyes. He kept going back into the doctor and saying, you know, what's going on? What's happening with him? Where, where is this coming from? We could never get a plausible explanation for what was happening. And then Soon after my son was a year old, he started to decline neurologically. He lost his words. Um, he lost many of his normal mannerisms. He started doing these really unusual behaviors. He started craving certain foods. All these things that somebody like you knows are red flags for um, a child heading towards autism. But at the time, we were ignorant to this, and our pediatrician didn't help us at all. Um, we were living in Northern California, and we took our son to UCSF to get him diagnosed, and he was with autism, so the severe form, whatever that means. But at the same time, we visited a Dan doctor down in Pleasanton. Um, and as you know, back in 2004, the Dan movement was the way that doctors were treating these children for their underlying medical concerns. Well, some, some doctors. It was pretty much a handful. <laughs> Absolutely. There were a handful of doctors. Many of them were parents of children with autism. Um, and we met this great doctor who had been classically trained as a physician in Pleasanton, California, Dr. Lynn Milkey. And, and we, we were presented with two completely different worlds. At UCSF, autism was genetic. It was lifelong. He was likely to be institutionalized, and there was nothing we could do about it except to prepare ourselves. But in Pleasanton, 30 miles away, autism was triggered by vaccines. It was an environmental illness. And if you amended the diet and started to do things differently, some of these children recovered completely. And so here's my wife and I, um, both educated at Stanford, both very mainstream, and we're, we're put at this crossroads for what to do for our son. And I, I asked this question, you know, as a parent, what would you do? And in our case, we looked at the facts. We looked at the reality of how our son had declined after being on a normal path of development. And we ultimately uh, made a decision that we did believe the vaccines were what triggered my son's autism. And we did believe that biomedical intervention could help him. And so that opened a whole new door to us. And soon after that, in 05, my wife and I founded Generation Rescue. Um, and the reason that we founded it was to try to share the information that we had learned with other parents. So that's where our journey kind of began. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Um, and how is your uh, child doing now? My, my son is 16. 
he's had um, dramatic improvement through biomedical intervention. Um, he went from not being able to speak to getting all his words back. Um, we can take him on airplanes and go on long family trips. Um, he can read, he can talk, um, but he continues to be affected by autism. And I think this is one of the messages that, that I try to share with parents. Um, some children recover completely from autism through biomedical intervention, um, but other children get better and other children improve. And at 16, my son continues to improve. So he hasn't won the lottery yet where he's headed off to college. Um, but I'll tell you that the, um, the sophistication of biomedical intervention improves by the year. And, and we remain very hopeful for his upside. And he's a you know, wonderful, delightful teenage boy. Certainly better than many of his contemporaries who follow the conventional approach. Uh, sure. yeah, you know, just a, a personal family bias. We would never give our son brain drugs, for example, any kind of um, prescription meds for his brain. We're lucky that he doesn't have seizures. Um, and again, we've had him on a, an extremely strict diet, um, a very complex nutritional protocol supported by a number of um, incredible doctors. And we continue to support him to the best of our ability. Um, but, you know, the, the book the book that I wrote, um, well, I do tell the personal story. Um, the reason that I wrote the book is that I think that the, the, the amount of facts that are out there today about how exactly vaccines are playing a primary role, and I say primary rather than only, but playing a primary role in triggering autism in certain vulnerable children, that set of facts has grown so dramatically since my son was diagnosed back in 2004. And I wanted parents to have the opportunity to view those facts in one place um, and to sort of get the entire story all at once so that they could appreciate the totality of the argument, which once you read it is crystal clear for what's happening. And I think in many ways that the, the jury is in on this. Um, my book is bolstered by the fact that um, two of the titans of the mainstream autism medical community have changed their tune through depositions and now support the things that parents have been saying for decades. And I think that that those two um, scientists who people don't know about um, and the, the, the way they've changed their tune are, are going to have a dramatic impact on this debate. We're talking about um, scientists from the Kennedy Krieger Institute at Johns Hopkins University, arguably the preeminent institution in the country um, focused on autism who are saying exactly what parents are saying, that in a vulnerable subset of children, vaccines are in fact the trigger of, the, of autism. Yes, and it's confusing because they certainly are associated with it, but as we, anyone who studied science knows that causation is not necessarily, or correlation is not necessarily a causation. So <clears throat> there are other variables too that can contribute to it. That actually, interestingly, happened about the same time as the increase in the vaccine schedule, which occurred the last half of the 20th century. We had the introduction of glyphosate, Roundup, which occurred mid-90s, and then we also had a radical increase in the exposure to EMFs. Both, all three of these things are pernicious, and when you combine them together, it's not a good combination. So it's difficult to tease out, especially when you combine that with genetic susceptibility, but clearly the uh, connection between the introduction of the vaccines and many children is, is pretty clear. I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. I, I think what I would say is that um, the, the challenge with glyphosate and EMFs is doing the science to discern what degree they're involved in the epidemic, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, the vaccinated versus unvaccinated study, the parental testimonials about children going upside down after the vaccine appointments, those give us very strong markers. But I do agree with you that 
Um, if you're trying to prevent a child from having autism, I think vaccines are a great place to start, but there are many other toxins, mm -hmm. um, and I put glyphosate and EMFs high on the list that are likely playing a role as well. Um, yeah. You know, the, the interesting science that's come about since the mid 2000s and beyond concerns this notion of an immune activation event in the brain of a child. And we, we believe that immune activation events are actually what causes autism. And so the question is, what's the trigger for those immune activation events? Because there can be myriad triggers. And the emerging science, which has largely been developed in other countries, shows us how aluminum specifically, aluminum, which the whole purpose of it being in a vaccine is to hyperstimulate the immune system, how aluminum in certain vulnerable kids um, can create a persistent immune activation event, sort of a simmering inflammatory event in the brain. And that simmering inflammatory event, if it happens during critical phases of brain development, um, can cause a child to head into autism. And those mouse models, unlike the epidemiology the CDC did that was um, not that helpful in trying to discern causation, those mouse models are showing us um, with some very specific data about the brains just how a vaccine can trigger an immune activation event that then leads to autism. And so I think that science, that new science, largely done on foreign shores, is not very well understood by the average American. And I put that into my book in a very kind of linear way to explain it and put it all together. And I think what, what comes out at the end of that is clear biological plausibility for how a vaccine can trigger an immune activation event, which then leads to autism. Yeah, and the aluminum, as you said, is added as an immune stimulant or as an adjuvant to increase the likelihood that they will generate antibodies, which is supposedly how these vaccines are designed to work. Um, and as most people who study this know, is a much more serious toxin than the mercury that's in the vaccine. It's not that mercury is, is benign, but clearly if you had one or the other, it'd probably get rid of the aluminum. The, I, I agree completely. The aluminum that goes into a vaccine is man-made and it's in a nanoparticulate form. And that's a far more important point than people appreciate. A nanoparticle injected into the body is something that the body doesn't know what to do with. And we now know through science that what happens is the immune system, as you know, has these things called macrophages. The macrophages come visit the injection site. They grab the aluminum that they don't know what to do with, and some portion of those macrophages end up in the brain, and they sit there, and it's called biopersistence. The aluminum just sits in the brain, and the body doesn't know how to get it out. And so the fact that aluminum can hyperstimulate the immune system, in my opinion, makes it far more dangerous. And what was interesting in the course of writing this book um, was that it also became clear that aluminum is likely the explanation for the massive rise in autoimmunity amongst our children as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it may not be the only reason, it's certainly a clear reason. And one of the things that you learn is that when the aluminum goes into the body, if another protein happens to be cruising by in the blood at the time the aluminum is there, that's what? A food allergy, right? Because the body goes to react to the um, hyperstimulation that the aluminum is providing. But if you have a dairy particle that happens to be in the neighborhood, you could have a temporal trigger, right? Just that moment in time could be enough to turn a child from not allergic to totally allergic to milk or some other product. And so whether it's asthma, um, all the different food allergies, diabetes, et cetera, it, it could be that we're looking at the same primary cause for so many of these conditions that have become epidemic amongst our children. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old, and we all know if we're 50 or above, there's nothing like what's going on today from our history. Children just weren't that sick, and there has to be a pretty simple explanation for such a massive rise. I think that vaccines and aluminum in particular are likely a primary trigger. Yes, and you might one might wonder what the motivation for that might be, other than simply trying to protect, ostensibly seeking to protect the public health. 
But if you look at the numbers, when I first started practicing in the mid eighties, uh, the vaccines were limited. I think literally one, less than 10% of what's now currently administered. And the revenues from those were relatively low. $170 million is certainly nothing to sneeze at, but that's about the total revenues in that time. And now the projections, uh, at least according to your book, is that they're going to generate $60 billion with a B, $60 billion in 2020, two years from now. That's up tremendously. So you can, and <clears throat> there are some other pragmatic components of this because, because, and maybe you can touch on this too, is the immunity from litigation that was established in the mid eighties, which insulates them from side effects and liability. And then uh, the expense of developing conventional drugs and you know the, the non-insulation from liability. So everything right. is moving towards a far better revenue generation model with vaccines than with the traditional medications. Yeah, so let's take a quick tour of that history that you just touched on. Um, this is something that really stuns people. Today for children, there are 11 separate licensed vaccines. And if you count them by needle, there's 38 injections by the time a child is five. Now, some people will count DTP as three, but I just mm -hmm. keep this. on a needle basis, there's 38 needles by the time a child is five years old. If you go back to 1985, there were three needles. So there was DTP, polio, and MMR. The DTP vaccination rate for children in the United States was 63%. The polio vaccination rate was 53%. And the MMR vaccination rate was 61%. And that was it. Okay, so we're in the 60% range for three vaccines in 1985. Easy peasy. Simple yeah. to do. And, and I that was, did it. Um, and, and we had an autism rate in 1985 of somewhere between 1 in 5,000 and 1 in 10,000, depending on which data you look at. So then in 1986, um, because the DTP in particular was causing so much brain damage, they passed a National Childhood Vaccination Injury Compensation Act, and they indemnify vaccine makers from all liability. And as you know, but maybe some of your listeners don't, if you get injured by a vaccine, you can't sue a vaccine maker. In fact, the person you sue is the federal government. And when you go to vaccine court in Washington, D.C., the lawyers who are paid money to fight your claim are Department of Justice employees. And the judge who's there to adjudicate your claim is a special master who has full control over the proceeding. So you have no jury. You have no normal judicial process. And that 1986 ushered in a rapid introduction of many different vaccines. Surprise, surprise. Um, today, today, I would argue, and I do quite strong in the book, we're simply giving too many vaccines um, for too many diseases that are not that dangerous. And in return, we have this massive explosion in chronic disease. And so it's a trade. We're, re we're slightly reducing certain acute illnesses and we're having a, an explosion of many chronic illnesses. And I think the, the question for Americans and the question for parents is, is it worth it? Is the reduction in disease worth the trade-off? And, and that's actually the conversation that I wish we could have. We don't have a realistic risk-reward conversation. You know, uh, vaccines are portrayed cartoonishly as offering you instant protection from whichever disease you get vaccinated for. The truth is more complicated than that. But let's talk about the risk side. You know, do I want to get a rotavirus vaccine if the risk is asthma? Do I want to get a, a Hib vaccine if the risk is a lifetime of diabetes or some other autoimmunity and a much higher risk of autism? By not acknowledging the very real risks of these vaccines, parents aren't in a position to make an informed decision about whether or not they're worth it for them. And I personally would support an immediate return to the 1985 schedule. You and I were both alive in 1985. Children were not dying in the streets. 
It wasn't the dark ages. We, we have to do something radical if we're going to change this chronic disease epidemic. One in 36 children with autism, almost 3% of the U.S. population is insanity. And to not acknowledge how bad it's gotten and do not acknowledge the primary cause is just prolonging the disaster for so many families. I can tell you, this is a this is a devastating diagnosis for almost every family that has to deal with it. It taxes families to an extreme degree. And, and because of that lack of honesty and transparency about the risk-reward trade-off, um, parents are left to find information for themselves. Yeah, and parents, um, the ones that remain married, are under a severe stress. And uh, it's my understanding from statistics that far more than 50% result in divorce as a result of the stressors induced by taking care of that autistic child, which is just tragic. It's just absolutely tragic. They would have to suffer from something totally unrelated to what they did. You know, autism for a family is devastating. I think one of the things that really frustrates me about this epidemic is um, the whitewashing of autism. You know, we have like the good doctor on TV and I, I applaud anybody with autism who can go on to be a physician and save lives. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I explained in the book that, that the good doctor representing autism is like a person using a cane representing paraplegics. The truth is that most children with autism can't speak. Um, most children with autism will never live alone. Most children with autism will never have a job. Most children with autism die early. Uh, most children with autism re require daily and hourly care. And we can never look away from the severity of this epidemic or of this disability for most of the children affected by it. And it's because of the devastating nature of the disability that it puts such a strain on families. Um, and my heart goes out to families that are lower income or two jobs or whatever, where they're struggling to make ends meet, and then autism gets dropped into their lives. It's simply devastating and untenable. untenable. We got to do something about it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's really tragic uh, <clears throat> that we're at this level. And I, I can remember back to the day I opened up my practice in 1985, when the incidence of autism was one in 10,000, and we were only giving five injections before the age of five, so very minimal. Um, and the and the strategy you recommended that we revert back to, and I would agree with that. But it wasn't until the early 90s that I saw my first autistic patient when the incidents started going up. And uh, sadly, I mean, you talk about Dr. Robert Mendelson. <clears throat> I, I, my practice was in Chicago, and he was a graduate and was on staff at the University of Illinois, which is where I went to school. And I certainly knew of him, but regarded him as a quack. And really, one of my biggest regrets is that he passed away before I finally understood the truth about vaccines, which was about five years after he passed in 1988. But uh, he was a primary uh, leader in this and really a pioneer in taking arrows in the back because even back in the, he was one of the first clinicians that really objected to this strategy. And this was before, this was with the old uh, vaccine schedule. Yeah, it, it was amazing for me in doing research for the book to learn about Dr. Robert Mendelson because I, I was a child when he was mm -hmm. uh, on TV and writing for the Chicago Tribune and all those things. It was kind of hard to believe that a, that a pediatrician with the profile that he had had been so clear about the dangers of vaccines so long ago. It was painful to imagine how much his warning um, hadn't been heeded. And, you know, I want to talk about one other thing that um, Drs. Zimmerman and Kelly really brought up about, about vaccinating children. Um, in their depositions, this is Zimmerman and Kelly from the Kennedy Krieger Institute, in their depositions, they make it clear that they feel very strongly that children need to be screened 
before their first vaccine, and that that screening could arguably take some or all of the pool of vulnerable children out of harm's way. Uh, and they bring up specifically in their depositions things like um, the MTHFR mutation, that mm -hmm. gene which, which can um, limit the ability of the body to detoxify. Um, they bring up uh, maternal autoimmunity history as a potential risk, you know, any signs of food allergies, um, any signs of, of other illnesses, obviously. But there's this list of screens that you could do in advance mm -hmm. that might save a, a meaningful portion of these children from harm. And it's what's so frustrating about that is in order for those screens to be put in place, there has to be a, an acknowledgement of causation, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we can't get to that point as adults, if we can't get to that point as parents and scientists and doctors and come together and say, you know, something that was originally well-intended, which I genuinely believe that vaccines were originally well-intended, I don't mm -hmm. take that away from people who originally came out with them, is actually causing more harm than we thought. And we've got to get certain children out of the way. And that's where I appeal to parents to say, look, take screening to heart before you put that first needle in your child. Do your own genetic tests. Do your own autoimmunity history. Find a pediatrician who is open to you. And by the way, that's another point that I, I really made in my book. This is not a parents versus the science. I'm sitting here talking to you. You're a doctor. You're not the only one. You're a very loud voice on our side. And thank you for that. But there are other physicians who understand the truth other pediatricians who understand the truth, other scientists who, who understand the truth, and their numbers and their chorus are growing. And I hope they continue to come together and tell the truth because that will give parents more energy and belief that what we're saying is really the truth to protect their children. Yeah, that's, that's certainly the case. So <clears throat> one of the, um, well, you know, the, with, you, you said they should do their due diligence and maybe get their child tested, but there's one vaccine that I find particularly objectionable and, and, and really atrocious is the, because it's so irrational, it's the hepatitis B vaccine. It's given on the first day of birth. And there's literally no justification for it, for yeah. a disease that may affect them 10 or 20 years later. I, I, I personally believe, and I, I want to make it clear that this belief is not, there's not enough science to corroborate what I'm saying. But I personally believe that the introduction of Hep B and Hib, um, which they did almost simultaneously in the early 1990s, are the primary trigger of the autism epidemic because they're loaded with aluminum, they're mm -hmm. given early, everything kind of maps up to those two. You may know that um, Goodman and Gallagher did some studies out of um, SUNY Stony Brook where they looked at the Hep B series, and its relationship to both special ed and autism, and they found much higher rates in boys who had gotten the Hep B series. Um, but back to your original point, um, there's a pediatrician here in Portland, Oregon, where I live named Dr. Paul Thomas, and he has the largest single pediatric practice in this entire city. Um, and he doesn't give the hep B vaccine at all, unless the mother has hep B, of course, and then he will yeah, get it. It's appropriate. Yeah. And, and as he explains, the screening is so amazing for women who are about to give birth that they always know the hep B status um, and that to otherwise give it is insanity. And, and I was actually. Well, it, it clearly is irrational. Yeah, There's it, no it, justification for it. And, and I was interviewing Dr. Thomas and I asked him, have you ever personally seen a case of hep B in your practice? And he said, no. I said, have you ever seen a mom with hep B in your practice? He said, no. Now, of course, they exist, but mm -hmm. he doesn't even give the hep B vaccine. It's that um, it's that inconsequential. Um, you know the vaccine wanes with time, so by the time a child, the child is probably 10 years old, most no longer have protection anyway. And if you're really worried about your child and risky behaviors where they could catch hep B, whether that's sharing needles or unprotected sex or that kind of thing, they should get that in their teen years anyway. And I think 
I think when parents understand how crazy it is to be giving the hep B vaccine to every baby, they can start to lose a little bit of faith in the CDC. And maybe hep B in a way will be the downfall um, of this crazy vaccine schedule because it's so unnecessary and so inappropriate. And there are many first world countries where it's not given unless the mother has hep B. Which is the appropriate use of that, which would reduce the administration well over 99%, So, But let's go back to the faith that most people, certainly the public health authorities and most all conventional physicians have in the vaccine system. And that's based on this correlation of a decline in infectious diseases mortality with US children in the US and the introduction of vaccines. And there, again, this confusion that correlation is not necessarily causation. And there's other variables that likely contributed to that decrease. So why don't you address that? Because it's always good to review this. We've discussed it before, but it's it's really, really an important concept that questions the very foundation of these recommendations. I have a blog. It's jbhandleyblog.com. And I wrote an article within the last two months called Did Vaccines Save Humanity? I think it's a fair question to ask, and I think the data exists to answer it. And so I, I went back and looked, and between 1900 and today, there's been a, a, a massive um, decline in mortality of humans, right? We all know that. Um, but public health scientists for a long time have been able to evaluate what are the drivers of that decline in mortality. And it's things like improved standards of living, kind of globally, clean water, refrigeration, sewage, and a very important one that people don't appreciate as much, a decrease in crowding, right? A decrease in people living together in kind of cramped mm -hmm. quarters. Um, each of those is a driver of a reduction in infectious diseases. And so they went back and I, in my article, I quote all the published science. They, they tried to calibrate exactly what effect did each of these things have on the decline in mortality. And when they got to vaccines, because the data shows dramatic declines in these infectious diseases before the introduction of the actual vaccine, when they got to vaccines, they estimated that vaccines role in that overall decline in mortality from 1900 to today was somewhere between one and three and a half percent of the total decline. And so what that says is they played a role and it was a small role. Facts are facts, data is data. So anybody who tells you that, you know, billions of lives have been saved because of vaccines or whatever the number they try to use, or that it's the primary driver is insane because the, the, the facts don't support them. And said differently, if you go to Africa where they're still living in crowded conditions and they still have horrible water and they still don't have sanitation and they still don't have refrigeration and you vaccinate every kid, you might kill more children than you help because all the other conditions haven't been bolstered. And we actually learned that through science within the last year by a study um, published by Dr. Peter A. Aby, who is a renowned epidemiologist of vaccines. And what he found in a very isolated country was that the children who got DTP vaccine were five times more likely to die than those who didn't. And the reason for that, as far as he could explain it, was that it weakened their system so much that they were far more susceptible to other infections because they were living in a highly infectious environment. So if you go after public health and you don't do it with totality and you think vaccines are going to solve the problem, they're not going to solve the problem. And there's no data that says they would. Yeah. So I think the first step in... Uh helping people understand this is to do your homework. And ideally this is done before your child is born because even if you disagree and come to the conclusion, disagree with the introduction of hepatitis B on day one, to say that you have to be hyper vigilant is a very, very serious understatement. Because I've known so many people who were absolutely opposed to it, yet they, those nurses still got in and snuck the hep, hep B vaccine on day one. 
really, you know, it's just, you almost have to be with a child for 24 hours. Just not, don't let them out of your sight. I mean, it, it really needs to be that, that obsessive to prevent that, that vaccine. It, so, it's, it's become like a religion. I think hypervigilance is the right word for the way that parents need to behave. Um, I have heard way too many horror stories of a, <clears throat> a child being taken away to be circumcised and they get to have be at the same time yeah. and the parents didn't even know it. And so um, do your homework. What I would tell parents is just be patient. Let some time pass. Learn about every single vaccine and what disease exactly that it's preventing. You know, it's interesting. Paul Thomas here in Portland, to give you another example, um, he doesn't vaccinate. He doesn't recommend that his patients vaccinate for polio. Now, that's something that some people have a very hard emotional time getting past um, because of an ugly history of polio epidemic in this country. And there's a lot of emotion around it. I bring it up because it's fascinating to think that a mainstream pediatrician who's a member of the AAP doesn't recommend that vaccine. And as he said, we haven't had a case of polio in this country since 1979. And so he recommends parents don't do it. Um, I'm not making that recommendation one way or another. What I'm saying is that's the kind of data you need to gather on each vaccine and decide for yourself is the risk reward there for me? If you if you do that research and you decide it's there for you, all the more power to you. This is a free country. I believe in medical freedom. I believe that everybody should use whatever intervention they think is appropriate for their child. But what I don't believe in is that a parent should walk into an office at two months old with a child who's two months old, having not done the research, hand your child over to the pediatrician, and they stick the child with six vaccines, and you can't name what any of them are. And by the way, that's the mistake that I made. And so it's the it's the kind of message that I try to send to other parents be way more informed, be way more vigilant. There are pediatricians in every market who are more open. Find those pediatricians and work with them and focus on the healthier child, not on implementing the CDC's vaccine schedule. And recognize that there are many pediatricians who are um, motivated by their insurance company to have really high vaccination rates. And because of that, they may not have your child's best interest at heart. They may have the bonus they're getting from their insurance company at heart. And that's really inappropriate, but happens all the time. And there are many children whether never, or at least on that day, shouldn't be vaccinated. And you want to find a pediatrician who will honor that. Yeah. And I, I believe by law, they're required to, to, to obtain an informed consent that virtually is never done, virtually never done. So in other words, you've got to know the entire risk profile and that's just not done. So, and I don't even know if they sign forms at all anymore or ever discuss it with patients. It's very sporadic. There is a, unfortunately a feeling amongst public health that the more time you start, the more time you spend talking about vaccines, the more time you spend introducing the real risks of vaccines, the lower your vaccination rate will be. And so oh, yeah. imagine that. <laughs> I know. So rather than respect that, that there's truth to that and it's because they cause damage. I think amongst the mainstream, the idea is we're not going to talk about this. We're just going to force it on the patients. And there's some really disgusting science out there about how to cajole I mean, I would use the word trick, how to motivate, how to manipulate parents into vaccinating by um, not sharing facts, but just sharing. It's like a marketing technique. And mm -hmm. I think that, I think they work very disturbed by that. You know, you would think that a vaccine could stand on its own merits. Um, but the truth is that parents today are being bombarded with stories like the one I'm telling of children regressing into autism and being injured by vaccines. And the chorus of fear is only growing. It's not subsiding, it's growing. Social media has actually facilitated that discussion, even as the mainstream media shuts us down. And I think parents have more opportunities than ever to get real information and make the right decision for themselves. And that's, I mean, that's one of the major messages of my book. Don't be me, 
Don't be the person who trusted your pediatrician. Don't be the person who conceded that. I couldn't have told you when my son was four months old what he'd been vaccinated for. I made this simple, um, ultimately, in retrospect, idiotic conclusion that, well, I'd been vaccinated, so my son, you know, it's fine. Had no idea the schedule had skyrocketed. Of course, no one told us that at the pediatrician's office, um, but it's ultimately on me and my mistake. Um, mm -hmm. Your responsibility as a parent. It is. It is. Absolutely. And I, I, um, I didn't, I didn't live up to that. And I encourage other parents to take a different path. Do your own research. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't know. I'd, for, if it was me, I'd have to do a lot of healing work around it. I had to do enough for administering those damn vaccines. You know, it's just, I, I, I mean, bring the tears, all the children I harm by doing that. Guilt, uh, guilt wrote this book, if yeah. you will, the, the two ways that I found, um, to deal with that guilt is one, uh, to focus on my son and helping him get better. And two, to warn as many parents as possible. And I, I you know, when you look at, at sort of the other side, the, the people who I guess I would consider kind of like my, my enemies or opposition on this issue. Um, the one thing that I hope parents will really take a look at is, you know, who said, who's giving this message. I'm just a father of a child with autism. I'm giving away a hundred percent of the proceeds from this book. I don't profit from autism in any way. I've only donated money to this, um, and I, the only motivation I have is a singular motivation to tell the truth and to save as many children as possible from the fate that befell my son. And in a way that provides me with some absolution for the mistakes that I made. That is the, that is the sum total of my motivation for being here and for writing this book and look at the people on the other side and their motivations and then try to judge from a sincerity standpoint, you know, who's telling you the truth and why? Well, you're not the typical parent of an autistic child because you've obviously got quite a good education behind you and you, you and your wife <coughs> were both Stanford grads and I'm, I'm just Stanford grads I'm wondering what you got your degree in uh, my degree is actually in economics and East Asian studies interesting uh, so nothing related to health nothing related to health when I when I got out of college I went into management consulting and then I, I jumped into the private equity industry and when I was 26 years old I started my own private equity fund and so I view my personal area of expertise to be um, spreadsheets and finance. And so I have a high facility with numbers. And I think that's what allowed me early on to start to read some of the epidemiology from the CDC and to see how many lies were baked into it and to become very suspicious. And so I don't have medical training. Um, I don't have a health background. Um, I've become a quasi expert um, um, because I feel like I've been forced to because I feel like I'm fighting for the life of my son. Um, but in many ways, I'm a lay person and I'm, I'm a proud lay person. Yeah. Um, sometimes it helps to be a bit of an outsider. And, um, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time in my career buying private companies. I know what, it, I know how people can lie with numbers. And I, I used to think that business people at, at times could be dishonest. There's nobody more dishonest than some of these vaccine scientists. It's unbelievable to me, um, the things that they'll do and the kind of studies that they'll put together and the way they'll represent what those studies say versus what they actually say. And by the way, I spent a whole, I spent a whole chapter in my book talking about this, this mm -hmm. notion that the science is settled is simply a lie. And mm -hmm. anybody who takes just a little bit of time to read the studies that they point to as proof that vaccines don't cause autism would quickly come to the, come to the same conclusion. They've only looked at one vaccine, MMR. They've only looked at one ingredient, thimerosal. And even those studies were ginned up. And they claim that that's enough to prove that vaccines don't cause autism. It's absurd. And anybody with the willingness to spend just a little bit of time on this topic will grow so disenchanted with the things they're saying because they're unsupportable. They're lies, they're propaganda. And I, I find that deeply disturbing that our public health officials will lie that blatantly. And when you have people like Dr. Zimmerman and Dr. Kelly from Kennedy Krieger, 
who are now supporting what the parents are saying, I think the lie falls down even further. And I think that they're going to have a lot of, they're going to have, they're really going to have to answer to this book. Yeah. And explain why they're saying the things they're saying. You know, um, I cover it in just a little bit in, in my chapter five of my book, but many of the um, scientists who've done some of the most amazing work on aluminum and biologically how it causes autism, they, they wrote a letter to our public health service. Each of them, each of these three scientists wrote a letter to our public health service and said, based on the work that I have done with aluminum, I think that the, the words on your website, they're talking to the CDC saying vaccines don't cause autism isn't true. I encourage you to look closer at the aluminum science that I'm including here in my letter. And um, this is a devastating crisis that I think we have answers for. I mean, this is these are international renowned scientists writing to our CDC and saying that the things you're representing to the public aren't true. And you need to look at this topic again. This is not parents versus the CDC. This is esteemed international scientists. This is clinicians from Kennedy Krieger. This is a chorus of people all saying the same thing, like the gig is up, like the, the truth is there for anybody willing to look. And I really hope that that group of people all come together at the same time and say, enough is enough, enough with the lies. There's one in 36 children, it's unacceptable. We have a clear answer for at least a primary trigger of what's going on. And we need to start saving children, moving those at great risk out of harm's way to help end the autism epidemic. No question. So. <clears throat> quite an increase from one in 10,000 to one in 36 and projections by some as low as one in two in the not too distant future, which is just incomprehensible. I mean, if it really reaches that level and we have half of the population having dementia from Alzheimer's, that is an unsustainable position and the bulk of the population will have to, we can't survive. It's just, it, it, it just doesn't add up. You have no one to take care of them. You know, society as we know it would be over. And I, I think one of the one of the things that people may not appreciate, if you look at any public school system in the United States right now, they are upside down due to special ed. It is a it is a crisis in every public school system in America, and the unwillingness to acknowledge the scale already of that crisis um, is criminal. And to imagine a one and two number, we're done. We're done as <laughs> we're done as a country. We're done as a society. There's no way that we can sustain the expenses so high for the average child with autism, several million dollars over their lifetime for each person to support them. We're done as a society. We've debilitated yeah. too many Can't, people. If they have a number, as in certainly a financial person, you, you're really good with the numbers, okay. so you, you can support that. But okay. I, I applaud your strategy, or at least documentation of the strategy to have reputable scientists with solid science approach the government and have them reconsider their position. But uh, it was destined to be a flawed strategy because of the revolving door between the federal regulatory agencies and public health authorities and industry. I mean, the former head of the CDC um, was, uh, whose name escapes me now, Janet? No. Julie Gerberding. Julie Gerberding, yes, MD, uh, for seven years or so. And then she went into the vice president of vaccine research for Merck. I mean, what a more obvious component. That's just one of dozens and dozens and dozens. So the federal regulatory agencies are locked up, up, bought and sold by the industry. There's no way you can implement change. So it has to be an alternative. You're not going to implement change at a federal level. And in your case, in the state level, even you, your child was born in California, which had the most, one of the most liberal vaccine exemption laws. I mean, it was one of the few states that had personal exemptions, which they abolished a few years ago. And is that one of the reasons why you moved to Oregon, by the way? 
No, we moved, we moved before that happened. I did end up fighting the, the Oregon law that was headed down the same path and we were able to defeat that up here. Um, but you know, I would, I would make a couple of points about what you just said. Um, first of all, there is a racketeering component to what is going on. Okay. The CDC is a captive agency to big pharma. And there's many reasons for that. One part of it is the CDC implements the vaccine schedule. And so they're motivated to continue to do that. But the other thing that happens is the best CDC employees end up with plum pharma jobs. And so as long as you keep that revolving door moving, then everybody knows how to play the game and to stay on the right side. Julie Gerberding leaving CDC and being the president of Merck's vaccine division is perhaps the most egregious and obvious example, but there's thousands of other examples. And so you go into CDC and you're working there, you're sort of working there temporarily till you, till you land your big pharma job. And so the last thing you're gonna wanna do is alienate big pharma. And that's where regulatory agencies have to be restructured. So for example, CDC can't be in charge of implementing the vaccine program and also in charge of vaccine safety and also in charge of counting autism numbers. It's insane that those three things all happen within the same group. Um, and so that would need to be broken up and busted up in some way. They are a captive agency today. And that's that's very, very dangerous and very concerning. And, and you are getting to a question which I often ask myself, which is like, well, how do you break this thing up? The power of the president would be one way. Um, I think an organization with the stature of Autism Speaks could potentially be another if they were really willing to say with clarity, okay, vaccines are a primary cause. We need to do something about this. They have the potential weight to make a move like that. Um, and otherwise, I think that it's going to be settled in the courts and not the courts of the vaccine court, but actually mm -hmm. suing vaccine makers for other things, suing these vaccine spokespeople for lying and manipulating behind the scenes. I think that I think that the courts may be our, our final opportunity to get that to is an interesting uh, recommendation that I haven't really heard before, but it's, it certainly appears to have some value to that, especially in light of the recent decision with Monsanto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awarding a three hundred nearly three hundred million dollar judgment and got five to eight thousand other class action lit litigants coming up against them, which could literally bankrupt Bayer who bought them. I mean, it has the potential right. to, I mean, this is, could, could be tens to hundreds of billions of dollars in damages. And, and exactly. And I think that, I think many of us in our community are emboldened by the Monsanto ruling. And what was, what happened in the Monsanto trial was that um, the, those suing Monsanto had the power of discovery. And so yes. they were able to get internal documents. <laughs> Such a golden opportunity. We haven't been able to um, depose a vaccine employee in 30 years. And we need to find a way to be able to do that. And I do fear that courts are going to be sort of the, la the last and only way that we actually end this epidemic. Maybe somebody at Autism Speaks will step up to the plate. Maybe somebody at the AAP, which would be the other way this could end, will step up to the plate. Maybe the president will step up to the plate. I think that's completely unpredictable. Um, but in the meantime, what we can keep doing is collating doctors and scientists together who know the truth. And I think the more they speak as one voice, because their voice is more important than a voice like mine of a parent, um, the more these, these um, scientists who are doing the real work, and I, I want to talk about that for just a second. When, when tobacco, in 1953, they painted mice with tobacco tar and they developed cancer. That was the first domino. But it took 40 years. Mm -hmm. 40 years because they kept doubt in the equation for 40 years. We That's part of their strategy. It's, it's embedded into the whole strategy. I, and you create doubt, create doubt. Rule number one. In terms of how nasty but effective it is. Um, we have scientists who are doing the real work now. They need to stand together. The more they stand together as one voice, the tougher they're going to be to knock down. They'll rifle shoot any one scientist, but if they can lock arms 
and the doctors too, who know the truth and all speak as one voice, I think at some point that chorus will start to be heard. And so I think that's a really important part of this too. And by the way, I document all the science that's been done recently, almost all of it biological, that points to the possibility of how vaccines trigger autism through these immune activation events. That science continues. There's many more studies on their way out. At some point, we're going to have an overwhelming body of evidence that CDC is going to have to deal with. And what I can tell you is that any animal model where one group of animals gets the vaccines and one group of animals doesn't, it's always bad. Because well, they're yeah, they're it's, it's encouraging that they're doing this work and that uh, there is this other option of litigation in the courts. Uh, that, that, that is an intriguing opportunity. I, the parents aren't going to stop. The parents no, are they, they can't. And it's, it's, it's only going to get worse. We're at one in 36. I mean, if it goes up tenfold, that's one in three. I, I think one of the things that the other side may underestimate, that one in 36 number has a single good side to it. The only good side to it is that new people every day come into our community. Mm -hmm. it, certain of them have power or money, right. connections or some combination. Got and to it just by the random numbers. Billionaires, politically yeah. connected people, whatever it might be, um, they continue to join the community. At some point, that chorus is also loud enough to do something to break the dam once and for all, hopefully before it gets too much worse. Yeah. And then um, you put together this event, Generation Rescue, which is the fourth or fifth year now? So Generation Rescue was founded by my wife and I in 2005. So we've been an organization who have been, yeah, 2005. Okay, so it's 13 years, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. We've been an organization that's been there for parents who want to initiate biomedical intervention. As part of Generation Rescue's um, initiatives, we do an Autism Education Summit, which is in its fifth year, which will be in Dallas, where you're a keynote speaker, which we're very grateful for, thank you. Um, and the Autism Education Summit is a wonderful opportunity for parents to come and learn from all the cutting edge doctors who are treating children with autism biomedically. And so I think that parents can go there and hopefully learn things that will help their children improve and maybe even recover. Generation Rescue's purpose has always been to help children recover from autism. Yeah. Yeah. And your event is reasonably priced. So it's, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you're losing money at these prices because I know what it takes to put on, put on an event. Money. And Jenny McCarthy, who's the president of our organization, um, her focus has always been about parents and about wanting to make things financially reasonable for them to be able to come and learn and save their child. And so that's been her focus. And so we're happy to lose money on the event to inform parents. Yeah. Well, congratulations for making that effort. Thank you and very much. I'm excited to be there. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll have this interview up before that so that if anyone's interested, I mean, probably the biggest expense is just getting transportation and lodging down there. It's going to be a lot less expensive than the actual ticket. That's true. Yeah. So... You know, that's a, a great effort you're doing. Um, anything else you'd like to, to mention in the book? Because there's so much there. I mean, it really, if you have any interest in this, I couldn't recommend the, your book, The End of the Autism Epidemic, because uh, it's really good. It's, it's sim in some ways, it's similar to um, Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, The End of Alzheimer's. Uh, I mean, he doesn't discuss the that goes into the history like you do, but it's really an, an epic book that can help you understand and take positive action so that you can be prepared because there's going to be, I think, the, I mean, it's pretty clear, unless we're able to get this litigation strategy, which could take a decade or longer, that we're going to have a significant percentage of the population who's going to be beyond seriously impaired, not only physically, but financially. And, and unless we have, a, we need a small contingent of informed, aware individuals who can sort of create this nucleus of healthiest individuals that can help the culture survive 
beyond this catastrophe. It, 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 it doesn't exist. The, the sea species is extinct. It sounds like doomsday, what you're saying, but I fear that the, the odds of that happening are actually pretty high if we don't yeah. think about it soon. I, I think the, the final comment that I would make is that um, I really, well, I hope that doctors and scientists and public health officials and members of the White House all read my book. I really wrote this book for other parents. And so if you're a parent or a parent to be even more so, um, I really just tell you, just spend the time, start on page one, <laughs> go through the whole book, read it for yourself, and then take charge of your child's development and their health and, and keep doing the research. You may not agree with everything I wrote. Um, I hope that those on the other side who read my book will choose to debate me, ideally live and publicly. I would really welcome and honor that opportunity. Um, I think that they're lying about much of the science and about the autism epidemic. And I hope some of the more um, public spokespeople, whether it's Paul Offit or Peter Hotez, will get on a public stage with me and debate, debate me in front of the world. I, I would really welcome that opportunity. And it's time for us to start dealing with um, this absolutely unstoppable, terrible epidemic that has absolutely destroyed a generation of our children. Have you ever debated one of these experts before? Um, I've I've been scheduled to, to debate Paul Offit on several occasions, and every single time he's backed out. So I hope he hears this, and I would debate him live tomorrow, given the opportunity. Uh, Peter Hotez, the same way. I've personally volunteered to debate him in a public forum, and none of these guys will debate me. Um, and I, I want it to be live. That's always one of my criteria. But I'm a layperson, and these scientists and doctors who think vaccines are the greatest invention in the history of man won't get on a stage and debate a parent about uh, whether or not they cause autism. And I think that should tell people something. But I, the door remains wide open for me. I'd be happy to do it. Yeah, and I want to comment on that again. You are a layperson, but you know you have a very good educational background, and it's very clear that they just didn't teach you information. They taught you, more importantly, how to learn. And a lot of people watching this know how to learn too. And there are resources that exist in the 21st century that never existed last century. And you can learn, thank God, for the internet. There's a lot of information there that's available essentially for free. Yes, you can get your book, which is a great purchase, but there's, you know, you can validate it through so many other, other mechanisms. And you can acquire a level of expertise that exceeds the physician you're seeing, as clearly you have done. And you, I mean, you're willing to debate the, not only any physician, but the leaders in the entire field. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I'm grateful and I agree with you. I think many of the people watching this video can go through the same process that I went through and hopefully my book will be a starter for them. Um, you know, honestly, one of the reasons that I'm so comfortable debating these people is they're they're sitting on a web of lies. I mean, their studies are useless. They can't they can't support what they're saying with any kind of detail. And I know that's I believe that's why they're unwilling to debate me. They know that they're sitting on a castle of sand and that um, that too much scrutiny will show quickly. They can't they can't support many of the things that they say. Yeah, before we go, I, I neglected to go have you go over and review some of the depositions that you have in your book that were, uh, I, I'm not sure how they were obtained. There was must have been some lawsuit going on where they were deposed uh, and the discovery process was live. So it, it, can you give some of the highlights of that description? Because it was yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, so th there's three depositions. So two of them I've, I've referenced in terms of um, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman and Dr. Richard Kelly. And those are the two of the preeminent members of the Kennedy Krieger Institute, the leading autism institution in the country, where they say <clears throat> unequivocally that vaccines are causing autism. And so that's chapter six of my book. And I think that could be the only chapter of my book and that most people would be convinced at that point that we have a real problem. Um, the other deposition in the book is Dr. Stanley Plotkin. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stanley Plotkin is 
um, arguably the godfather of the vaccine industry. And he was brought in by Paul Offit and Voices for Vaccines, which is a pharma front group, um, to be an expert witness in a, in a case in Michigan where a husband and wife were disagreeing on whether or not to vaccinate their child. Um, he sat through an eight-hour deposition. Um, he was destroyed by the opposing counsel. And what was revealed, it was many of the um, tricks and false narratives and disturbing ways of thinking that people in the vaccine industry think through. Um, because Dr. Plotkin has one, been one of the thought leaders of that. So we learn everything from the fact that he used to, he tested vaccines on mentally retarded children, his words, not mine, um, babies in prisons, um, orphans, et cetera. So we kind of learned the, the ugly history of vaccine trials. Um, but he clearly acknowledges that the DTP vaccine doesn't really work, that the HPV vaccine trials were in fact quite faulty because they had a um, placebo group they received an aluminum containing vaccine. Um, He's, he's artful in, in never acknowledging that vaccines cause autism. Well, we know the science hasn't been done. It, it goes kind of on and on. I think that for parents, it will be really revealing to hear from a vaccine industry heavyweight. And, oh, his conflicts of interest are spelled out in detail that he's literally making millions of dollars a year from vaccine makers and yet projects himself as sort of this independent spokesperson about vaccines. So I think the, the he, he bailed on the trial the next morning after giving this deposition, he, he refused to be an expert witness. Luckily, we were able to obtain that deposition in a public manner. Um, it's not sealed. And I think anybody who reads his words in that deposition will be blown away by um, how the arguably the thought leader in the vaccine industry actually thinks. It's very, very damning and very, very disturbing. Yeah, that alone is worth the price of the book, let alone all the other great information. It's uh, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, congratulations on compiling it and your passion and dedication and commitment to really educating those and, and seeking to prevent the damage that you unfortunately had to go through and so many other parents have to go through it. So it's needless pain and suffering and really one of the primary motivations that causes me to continue what I do to, to educate people, to inform them that so they don't have to go through needless pain and suffering because it's just well, on behalf of millions of parents, I want to thank you. You've taken, I'm sure, plenty of arrows in the back on this topic, but you've been steadfast. You've talked about this topic for years, and I think you're a voice of reason and a voice of light for a lot of parents. So I'm grateful that you allowed me your platform to talk about this book. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you were able to join us. Uh, it's uh, been long overdue, so we've got a lot of work in front of us, but <clears throat> I think we can look to the Monsanto trial, and then what we've also been catalyzing through mercury when I think one of the reasons why vaccines is so hard to overturn aside from all the variables you mentioned is the, is the 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 variable of being around for so long it's hundreds of years very similar to the use of mercury in dentistry which which dates back to the civil war so when you have some intervention that's been accepted as valid for so long, the, the longer it's been implemented, the harder it's to overturn. But we're making great, great progress in removing mercury from dentistry. And I hope in my lifetime, we'll be able to see a radical modification of the, the use of vaccines as opposed to what's being done today. You and me both. Okay. Well, thanks. And I look forward to seeing you in Dallas. I'll see you very soon. And thank you very much. All right.